Hello, I'm Michelle Cahill, and welcome to the XQ Expert Series. Today we're talking about staffing for student-centered learning. By staffing, we mean teachers, of course, but we also mean school leaders, counselors, and other school staff, and a broad group of people we call non-traditional educators. The question we're trying to answer is this. If you know what kind of student-centered learning experiences you want to provide in your school, how do you find and keep the right people on board to realize that vision? Our guests today are Betsy Ahrens, the CEO of the Urban Schools Human Capital Academy, a nonprofit organization she founded to help districts and schools improve the functioning of their human resources operations. Genevieve DeBose, a secondary school English teacher who has taught in both district and charter schools in Los Angeles, Oakland, and now the Bronx. Genevieve is also a National Board Certified Teacher and a member of the National Commission on Teaching and America's Future. Hilary Sammons, the founder and executive director of the Providence After School Alliance. PASA has built an incredible system of expanded learning opportunities, engaging and serving thousands of middle school and high school students every year. Welcome. Genevieve, can you tell us a little about your career and the different schools you've taught in? It'd also be great to hear a little about why you decided to become a National Board Certified Teacher. I started teaching in the district that raised me, Los Angeles Unified, where I taught in a large traditional middle school. I've also taught in Oakland and now in the South Bronx in smaller charter schools. I left teaching for three years to do some policy work and really missed being in the classroom. And I'm now in a traditional New York City Department of Ed 6 through 12 public school. I became National Board Certified in my 10th year of teaching. I was at a place in my career where I didn't feel as if I was being pushed and I wanted an opportunity to learn and develop. I wanted to be part of a network of accomplished teachers. I wanted to be around people that I could learn from and grow from. Those things really spoke to me and and pushed me to become board certified. I'm going to go to Betsy here. Can you describe the Academy and its work? The Academy came about as a result of central office functionality or lack thereof when it came to doing human resources and human capital work. People in the central office are responsible for making sure that schools have the best quality and best caliber teachers and other staff. What I found when I was in New York City is HR was really getting in the way of finding and keeping great people. So we worked very hard in New York to do a transformation, and since then we've done it in a number of districts across the country to make sure they have a comprehensive approach to finding and keeping great quality staff. Let me turn to Hillary and ask you to tell us what's the Providence After School Alliance and what does it offer students? PASA was formed about 12 years ago as part of um, an initiative that was happening across the country, largely funded by the Wallace Foundation, but other foundations as well, that were looking to have cities and communities build more robust after-school systems. And there was a really strong emphasis on what cities could build through public and private partnerships, mobilizing the nonprofit, non-traditional education community, and to organize them in, in a systemic way to serve lots of schools, as Betsy has talked about. How do you ensure that there's quality approaches and practices, whether it's a basketball instructor or a robot builder or someone who's doing a design build project or some STEM learning out in the field, how do you ensure that there's consistent quality 
across a whole network of nonprofit organizations and also including teachers and how do they all work together sharing same practices. So that's what Providence has done, serving about 2,000 youth, bringing together formal faculty from schools, working together with the non-traditional or community educator. There was a fun example last summer when our mayor came to visit a summer STEM sailing program and we had teachers, science teachers, working alongside sailing instructors and the mayor who was originally from Guatemala asked all the kids, you know, how do you know how to sail? I'm from Guatemala. I've never even thought of sailing. Three kids shot up their hands and said, we're from Guatemala too. That's so cool. We know how to sail and we could teach you. And the teacher from our school didn't know how to sail, but now we work together with her and our sailing instructor and do all these sort of math problem solving around the weather and tide charts. So that's what's kind of cool about our convergence of the non-traditional and the traditional teachers. Right. You're really getting us, uh, all three of you, into the space of reimagining roles, reimagining learning experiences, reimagining partnerships. Since we're talking about staffing, talk a little bit about hiring. We know as one of the first challenges that a new school will face. Genevieve? I've always taught in high-need schools, and we as teachers don't necessarily reflect our students. How do we recruit and retain teachers that represent the students that they'll see in their classrooms? There's a really great new organization that I'm involved in called the Black Teacher Project. It's come out of New York and Oakland. Two to three percent of all of our teachers across the country are black and Latino males. Last week after school on a Wednesday, I went into my colleague's classroom. It was probably the bell had rung like 15 or 20 minutes ago. And um, my colleague, uh, Mr. Callender, is a veteran black male math teacher. And he had three boys in his room, all black and brown boys, just in this like heated discussion around all kinds of things, math, basketball, and they did not want to leave his side. And I said to a colleague in the hallway, I was like, this is why black male teachers matter. My boys aren't connecting to me that way. I think also about students who are lesbian, bisexual, gay, transgender, and queer, or have a range of gender identities, and thinking about how do they see themselves in our schools. And so I think schools that I've found that are really wonderful about recruiting and retaining a diversity of teachers are places where you can talk about race, or you can talk about socioeconomic status, and we as teachers can say, you know, I grew up in a middle-class family. I don't necessarily know what it means to go home and not know where my next meal is going to come from. How does that impact how I teach my kids? And if you don't have those conversations or there's not a structure in place, it makes it a lot harder to keep folks and to help us all grow as educators and to make teachers who sometimes are not in the majority want to stay. Betsy, how do you search for the qualities that Genevieve is describing and hire the right combination of staff? I couldn't agree more with what Genevieve just said. Teaching is a team sport and the mindset is critical because when you're hiring, you can teach a lot to your staff around content, curriculum, methodology. You cannot teach a different approach or mindset. If someone comes in and doesn't believe that all children should and can learn. If someone comes in and doesn't believe in collaboration and wants to close the door, that is a very hard characteristic to work with. They have to have openness to critique. So they cannot be defensive and constantly resist getting better and having continuous improvement. So I think many teachers feel like they're criticized often. And 
yet you speak about a mindset to be open to critique. How do you think about that in a way that both professionalizes respect inside a school and also creates a mindset that breaks into this privatizing isolation. I honestly think that, again, what Genevieve and Hillary mentioned, the relationships are very important. If you have that relationship with your teachers, they should be extremely open to hearing what areas of strength they have, which I'm sure they have many, and then those areas where they might benefit from either observing another teacher, going to another building, having dialogue with their fellow teachers or with the principal. I wanted to echo what Betsy was saying. Learning really needs to happen for everyone. So, of course, for our students and for our educators. I think you're right. There needs to be a strong um, relationship between administration and teachers to create a space where we would be open for critique. I've been in schools where maybe there wasn't the best relationship between administration and teachers, but teachers got together and said, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Can you just come in and watch me? Because I've noticed your relationship with these three kids is very strong, and I'm really hitting a wall. And so this notion of like doing it in a very non-evaluative space, but in a space where I really just want to get better and I'm going to make myself vulnerable because this work is really personal and can be very intimidating. I think you're all emphasizing the importance of the relationships functioning well among the adults into a coherent approach with the mission of of the school. Hillary, you've created a system that's quite complex that connects non-traditional educators with students and schools. Why is this so important for young people, but especially students in high-need schools? In Providence, most of our students in our public school system are high-need students. What they need that I think the non-traditional after-school expanded learning community brings is a relevant exposure to the real world. The reality is a lot of times academics just doesn't make sense when you've never been to the ocean. I mean, we live in the ocean state, and I would guess that 75 to 80 percent of our public school kids have never been to the ocean. Most of them have never been to museums. Most of them think they're not allowed on the college campuses that are surrounding their neighborhoods. So they have so little experience and exposure to what's oftentimes so text-based. So I think it's extremely important that students connect to real-world educators who are doers and makers People who come to us come to us with a passion and an expertise in a field, whether they're an artist or a fashion designer or a musician or a theater artist or an engineer or a a maritime environmentalist. They come with this passion and have chosen oftentimes to only teach in a non-traditional space because they don't want to be inhibited by a classroom. We needed to invest up front in the relationship building between the formal and the non-traditional because there was some, I think, intimidation. We had math teachers that were matched with design-build programs, and I'll never forget the teacher at first was really kind of threatened about the thought of using power tools. But now, after a summer of getting used to them, she can't wait to get back into this design-build and sees the implications and ways of using math that the design-build program was like, oh my gosh, it's so wonderful to have a math expert that can help us understand what different levels and applications, where geometry ties in, and, and how we can articulate that. So... 
it's exciting to bring the non-traditional teacher in, and I think they can get benefit a great deal from a marriage with a traditional teacher. I think it's really critical that we continue to expand non-traditional um, pathways into traditional teaching. First of all, you know, we have to really come to grips with the fact that schools of education are already down 10 to 12 percent nationwide, and people are not going into teaching in the way that they did when in the 60s and 70s, it was one of the only occupations available to women and minorities. Thank goodness that's all changed, but it has seriously depleted the pipeline into education. We work very hard with our districts who are very high needs to be able to expand their pool of potential candidates to those non-traditional graduates who might be an economics major who could teach math or might be someone who'd be interested in special ed but didn't have an education background. We can get them the education courses they need and the certification. Genevieve and Hillary, if high schools are really using time, technology, and space within and beyond the walls of the school more effectively, especially those who are creating a school from scratch, how would staffing of these schools need to change? We need to ensure that the schools are staffed in a way where we as teachers or educators can infuse our academic content into very relevant and engaging and rigorous learning experiences for kids and ones that allow them to kind of push themselves and grow and develop themselves and their identities. When I was teaching in Oakland, one of my favorite learning experiences and teaching experiences with my students was uh, we were studying ancient Egypt and looking at uh, with the guiding question, what can we learn about a civilization from the things they left behind? And so we were doing this really deep inquiry into ancient Egyptian artifacts. And so we partnered with my alma mater, the UC Berkeley Archaeology Department, where students got to meet real archaeologists, archaeology professors, and they even were able to do their own real, in quotes, dig on campus. But then we also were able to collaborate with a local artist who helped us follow the steps of ancient Egyptian artisans to turn our classroom into an ancient Egyptian tomb. As an English teacher and a social studies teacher, we did a great deal of uh, research and reading and writing about the artifacts we found. And my students then adopted that role of archaeologists to lead people through this tomb that they had quote unquote discovered, right? And so it was this really wonderful collaboration of outside educators and educators within our school. And to bring something that happened, you know, so long ago into the relevancy of Oakland kids in, you know, the 2000s. Earlier it was shared that in Providence, students may not feel like they belong on the Brown campus or the Rhode Island School of Design campus. And so when we get our kids onto these university campuses, they feel like they fit in. When we get them into museums, it's not something that's foreign. It's something that they they can relate to and they have experience with. Hillary, formal educators are often oriented to their own building. You've been getting them out into the community in new ways. How can people also design and imagine that? Well, that has been one of our biggest challenges. Thinking about opening up your school to spaces beyond the traditional school space and working with the non-traditional educators and collaborating with them, 
has taken a lot of trust building and orienting formal educators to what exists in their community. So we set up this system that takes young people out onto the Save the Bay boats and takes them into a cooking school that's in the Federal Hill neighborhood with Chef Walter's cooking studio for sort of upper middle class women. And getting teachers who oftentimes commute to go out into the community has been extremely important. So we've paired them to co-teach. And I would recommend that as you're designing a new school, get a van or a bus or go out and explore because there's artist studios, there's these design build studios, there's chefs who are willing to have you in the back kitchens. There was a great article, Why Some Poor Kids Thrive, when they're connected to after school and projects that have identity. I think the same thing happens with teachers when they get out into these lab and learning spaces. They start to realize the application and the relevancy that they're trying to take back into the classroom are enlivened in those spaces. So I think it's as true for kids as it is for teachers who are looking for innovation. I wanted to just add one more thing. When designing schools and thinking about who are our kids' first teachers, we think about families and parents. And one school that I worked at that did something pretty amazing was in Oakland. Every student at the school got an hour of home language instruction every day. And we had a very diverse student population. So we had students whose home languages were Spanish, English, Cantonese. The school leaders and us as the founding team were very mindful in thinking about how do we engage families, but how do we also honor where our students come from? And so parents were trained and hired as home language instructors. They had the support of a credentialed teacher. That is the school where, of all the schools I've worked in, we had the strongest relationships with our families. And I think the fact that families knew, oh, we're valued here. We are welcome here. We're teaching here. And students could see where I come from is, is valued. By integrating the high school with the community, we're really talking about teachers as facilitators and not fonts of knowledge. And we've had, I think, one of the most unfortunate practices of having kind of cookie-cutter schools where every classroom at the elementary is 1 to 25, and at the high school it's 1 to 150, whatever the ratio is. And we really have to break away from that. We have districts like Denver and Charlotte-Mecklenburg where the teachers are taking on a very different role, where an elementary teacher who is highly effective is taking responsibility for all the kids in the third grade. And teachers are working with that teacher leader to make sure that students are grouped and regrouped differently every day, depending on what they learned the day before. So I think rethinking the role of the teacher as a facilitator of all the knowledge that is both within the school, but also outside the doors of the school, in the families as well, is a very different approach to rethinking how we're going to staff. I've noticed that recently some universities are now teaching AP courses online for high school kids. And I'm wondering if we're really ignoring this entire body of knowledge that's out there that is way beyond what any teacher could possibly absorb and train for. So even though they may come in with a strong body of knowledge, there's so much more knowledge in their field. We cannot assume that people coming out of the universities have the total body of knowledge that they need to have or the strong academic background that really is comprehensive enough for what the students need to have for the future. 
So given this big challenge of getting the people that we need and the relationships that are needed for this kind of deeper learning, deeper teaching and learning, how do you build a school culture that supports student-centered learning? I hope that builders of these schools will look to this whole network. There's a whole network of cities like um, Providence and the Providence After School Alliance that have been really working collegially across our after-school systems. And we're all, there's about nine of us, part of a group called Every Hour Counts. We've really thought about how do you take the youth development practices of the instructor and how do you build those in a way that they can crosswalk very nicely with the Common Core and with next-gen science standards and with the workforce skills. And when you think about youth development, it really is about the teamwork and the problem-solving and effective communication and giving students agency and leadership and creativity and engagement and learning in this hands-on experiential environment, which is really the habits of mind of the common core. So our field's been really thinking about these social-emotional skills and measuring for them, and I think are a real resource for the high school designers out there to really look to the Every Hour Counts Network, because we've done a lot of measurement and metric and reflection and professional development with our colleagues in our communities on how do we get better at this? I couldn't agree more with you, Hillary, and it makes me think about data because I was thinking about just what kinds of data are most important to me as an educator, and the very first thing that came to mind was this social-emotional data, and that, as an educator, is where I go first in thinking about who are my kids as people, starting off the year with our family survey. My families know their kids best, so having them give me as one of their classroom teachers information about how they best learn. What do you love most about your child? You know, when they get frustrated, what do you see and how do you encourage them? That kind of data is key for me. If I don't have that social emotional data first, it's a lot harder for me to dive into some of that more academic and intellectual data and to think about how do I measure, you know, how my students are growing as writers over a particular period of time which is just as important, but I feel like that social-emotional piece is key. One of the things that you've said that is absolutely essential and a real change from the past is that data about young people includes their interests and their assets. So many times the data that we've given to teachers are all about the problems, and particularly in high-need schools, and sometimes the most caring people take that and almost have a reaction of lowering expectations on the academic side. I keep thinking how important this is. We have so many students that are just not thriving and doing well in school, but they're thriving in this alternative space. And we've discovered a student who's designed these amazing badges for us, and he's we've taken him to a design charrette at an advertising company, and he kind of led the whole design discussion, and only to find out he doesn't talk to anybody at the school. No one's ever heard him talk, but he talks to his art instructor, and he sure talked at this charrette, and he talks to his after-school coordinator, And it's when the teachers see them in these alternative spaces that they discover what Genevieve was talking about, these amazing assets they have that they are keeping privately to themselves that could explode in the classroom if only the teachers knew. Mm -hmm. So trying to get this when you're designing a new school or, you know, you're redesigning, how important is teacher leadership? I don't think this work will be done or sustainable if teachers are not leaders in the work. Ultimately, we are the people who have 
the most contact with students. And I say teacher, I'm expanding the notion of teacher to not just be traditional classroom teachers, but many of the teachers that Hillary and Betsy have talked about outside of traditional structures. There need to be structures um, and systems in place for teachers to come together to collaborate, to organize our instruction so that it's not only relevant to kids, but it's academically demanding. Uh, It has to be something that is school-wide and built into the organization of the school. And one of the things that I think was really crucial about the school that I worked at in Oakland was that we as teachers were trusted. And one of the things was they recognized and said, what do you guys need to get better at your profession and at meeting the needs of our students? And so that is the school of all the schools I've worked at where I had the most professional learning inside and outside of my building. And I could say, I'm really struggling in this area. And they would find the space to help me create an opportunity to learn more. So I think that was really key in terms of teacher leadership, needing to have, number one, an administration that supports the idea uh, that teachers are valuable, (laughs) which sounds also very crazy to say. At another school I worked at in the Bronx, we as teachers recognized a void in our learning and our professional development. And so we we said to our admin, would you be willing to give us one afternoon, two times a month, and we'll make it voluntary. And um, you know anybody that wants to join can. We had 100% of the teachers in our building say, yes, I want to be engaged in an inquiry-driven professional learning experience. That was one of the best professional learning experiences of my teaching career. I wanted to comment on Genevieve's, the the concept of how teachers grow and learn. In this country, most schools spend about $18,000 per teacher, what they call professional development. As we rethink high schools, we've got to rethink how we're using money and how we are helping teachers grow and learn both from each other and from outside sources. Involving them and how they learn the way she described is so much better use of resources. For us in Providence, the summer is a really invaluable professional development time. And I would hope that as people think about summer, I mean, in their school designs, they would think about that as time and space to experiment, to get out in the field. So this has been a really rich conversation. We are moving into a very different world in which jobs are changing. We don't even know what kinds of work young people will be doing in the future. We know they will need to be better educated, and everyone will need to have a combination of academic and youth development capacities. Teaching will have to change. What's the most important change that you see happening in teaching, and what makes you optimistic about school design and the future of teaching and learning? This may sound very self-centered, but the idea of teacher leadership and this notion that as educators, we know what we need. We know what's best as professionals for our own learning and then also for our students. Thinking about ways that we can create systems and structures to really play with time and play with collaboration so that teachers can lead without having to leave the classroom. That connection to students is so key. And when you step out of that, you very quickly forget the intensity and the emotion and the intellectual challenge that this profession requires us to take on. So creating spaces and structures for teachers to lead and still be present with students is really exciting to me. Betsy? I think differentiation. Just as we expect teachers to treat students with individuality 
every one of our schools is different and unique, and every one of our teachers is different and unique. 10, 15 years ago, we were treating everyone exactly the same, and if one teacher left, we just popped in another one, and we didn't think much about it. We need to begin to differentiate among and between people so that we can really utilize their skills and capacities in a very different way, using things like structures of teacher leadership, using differentiated pay, using differentiated hours, just looking at the differentiated ways we can both structure our schools and how we can utilize talent in very, very different ways. And that makes me very optimistic. Hillary? I'm very excited at the convergence that's occurring in the after-school expanded learning youth development world, which has focused so much on experiential and hands-on learning. I'm very excited that the informal educator after-school community is starting to be asked for its advice by our district, where we've been asked to do a youth development training for all new incoming teachers, and they're trusting us, and they're seeing that we have metrics and accountability and professional development related to the field and want to learn from us. So I, I feel as if there's a really a ripe opportunity with this new high school design project as well as this shift that's occurring in the field where teachers are coming out of the buildings and the after-school community is coming in and there's convergence. Thanks for tuning in to our discussion on staffing for innovative learning. We hope you found some inspiration from our experts. Visit xqsuperschool.org for more information on XQ, the Super School Project. Stay tuned for the expert series discussion on staffing for innovative learning starting at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. <laughs>